Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Shares for beginners. People are emotional with money. Everyone is, you know, even portfolio managers are professionals are because you think to yourself, okay, what's my performance fee going to be? How much I make less money or something like that. And you don't want to think about it like that. You want to think about it as, okay, the stock is worth this. It trades at this. So this is when I think the time period might happen when you ballpark it, whatever the case may be, or you own a company and you think, I don't know what the target price is, but I know it's growing. It's doing well, great management, increasing margin. I think it has a long runway. That's the way you really want to look at it. If you start looking at it like, oh, hey, I made this much money, you know, on this trade, or I made this much money last month, it's going to screw you up. You're going to start making bad decisions. G'day, and welcome back to Shares for Beginners. I'm Phil Muscatello. Today, I'm pleased to welcome someone who believes that successful investing and risk management is overwhelmingly a psychological exercise, where self-awareness, intellectual honesty, and an understanding of, and interest in, avoiding biases is required. That's a mouthful, Steve. (laughs) Stephen Keel runs Arquitos, a hedge fund that invests in a small number of unique companies with little debt and conservative balance sheets. Hello, Steve. Hi, Phil. It's great to be here with you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. So tell us about your background. Um, you are in the military and about the transition to now running a hedge fund. Yeah, so I have a little bit of a unique background. I think I was in the military, uh, just retired earlier this year, actually, uh, almost 21 years. I was in the Army Reserves and had a number of active duty years as well, including a deployment uh, back about 15 years ago. And, you know, I will say you would not think right off the bat that military experience has a direct correlation to kind of stock picking and research. But, you know, it turns out it actually kind of kind of does, especially on the risk management side, because as you're looking at different companies and you're analyzing them both qualitatively and quantitatively, you know, it, it helps to kind of have a whole range of potential outcomes and uh, understand that things don't always work out as planned. And so that experience has helped prevent uh, a few situations that, uh, you know, may, might have otherwise not been able to avoid, help to avoid some pitfalls, so to speak, in, in some of those companies. I have a few other industries or, that I worked in as well before uh, launching the fund. I was a lawyer also, and I also worked in public policy for about seven years in Washington, D.C. So, you know, I think each of those jobs brought a nice perspective to, you know, kind of the analysis side. Yeah. And um, I guess it's also, I've had a couple of uh, fund managers as guests and they've spoken about uh, Sun Tzu's Art of War. And um, the game planning that's involved in that is uh, very useful in terms of thinking about planning for approaching the stock market. Yeah, absolutely. I'd, I'd agree with that because there's a lot of game theory involved there too, because ultimately you're arbitraging perception from reality and the perception is the stock price and the reality is your view of know what a company might be worth. Uh, so it's an interesting exercise there. I think that's a good analogy. So um, what you're trying to do is to find out, I guess, um, the stories that make sense. I was speaking with a friend recently and they were talking about looking at the story and then going and having looked at the numbers as well. Is that sort of what you're doing or how do you approach looking at a, a company? 
I think you have to give a lot of credit to the qualitative side. The numbers, look, you have to understand how to read the financial statements and you have to have a view on that. But ultimately, you're looking for companies that have, you know, alignment, a high degree of alignment with you as the uh, outside passive shareholder. And so that requires an analysis of the management, uh, their view, their incentives, their goals, what they've accomplished previously, and how strong the industry is, not just the company itself, but certain industries can support a number of competitors there with high margins. So the qualitative approach, I think, is key. And, uh, you know, whether you start with that or the numbers, depending on whatever your process might be, I skew extremely heavily on the qualitative analysis uh, when, when determining whether to buy and own a stock and, and what amount to allocate it. That's an interesting uh, piece of jargon, and I always like explaining jargon. Qualitative means you're looking at the story, I'm assuming, and then quantitative is looking at the numbers. Is that a fair assessment of what you're saying? Yeah, I think so. When I talk about quantitative, I think about the financial statements. So you're kind of doing an analysis of where they're at currently, where they might be in the future. You're making some maybe realistic projections and ranges from that given their past experience. But then again, the qualitative side, when you're analyzing the actual operations of the business, the things beyond the numbers, that helps to inform both whether the numbers are predictable or not, what the variables are, and uh, how much confidence you can have you know, owning the company over the long term. You focus mainly on companies at the smaller end of the market. What's your definition of a smaller company? Well, it's a good question, you know, and the, the size small has gotten much bigger <laughs> over time. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the definition of small cap now is $2 billion market cap and below, something along those lines. Uh, you know, there's a big sweet spot, though, around the $500 million range. And uh, you can go a little bit smaller, too, if you can really understand the business. But when the companies are getting smaller than that, then it really depends on the leadership itself. And sometimes it really depends on one or two key members there. So there's less um, infrastructure, so to speak, uh, at those companies. And so, you know, to de-risk yourself, sometimes you want to go a little bit bigger there where, you know, companies are, you know, whether the $500 million market cap range, that's the things that I like to look at. I mean, I'll go anywhere. I do own some larger companies. I do own some much smaller companies as well. And I own a number of different instruments, you know, such as warrants and options and things like that. But if you can find a company that's growing very fast, that has a lot of predictability, not a lot of variables, high and in increasing margins, great balance sheet. You know, if you're in the $500 million range, you've got a long runway ahead of you. And I also guess that you're not um, competing against other analysts who are maybe concentrating at the larger end of the market. Yeah, great point. You know, where can you find a competitive advantage, right? relative to other investors. And if you are an individual investor or you're a smaller fund and you know, you're sophisticated enough to understand these companies and analyze them well, you're just not going to have those large number of analysts looking at companies of that size. And that gives you an advantage because uh, there tends to be more of a disconnect between you know, the stock price and the underlying value of the company at that size. I've heard you mention in another podcast that you're looking for companies in a special situation. Can you give us an example to illustrate that process? Yeah, a special situation is really something specific to the company itself. 
So there's a great book uh, Joel Greenblatt wrote called You Can Be a Stock Market Genius, and that's kind of the Bible of special situation investing. And he gives a number of different examples and walks through how to look for these different types of companies and different types of situations. An example might be an activist being involved. Uh, it might be a divestiture, a spinoff. You know, it might be a big tender offer, might be a rights offering, a number of different things that are specific to the company. They generally have a catalyst or a specific time period in mind. Uh, you know, so something like that for me is interesting to look at. And I might decide to own the company after that event happens depending on the circumstances. But sometimes, you know, you need to find the times when this happens, uh, there is a mispricing or there can be a mispricing there uh, during that special situation or that event. And uh, there's fertile hunting ground there. So have you got a specific example of a stock that um, you've been through with this process? Yeah, there was a recent one, a company called Namtai Properties. It was a a Chinese uh, property developer domiciled in the British Virgin Islands. There was an activist involved from the U.S. named Izzo Capital, and uh, there was a private placement done, a, a big stock issuance to a controlling shareholder that helped prevent a special meeting from being called. The activist investors sued the company, uh, won, and uh, the private placement that share issuance was reversed in a a special meeting was called. Uh, now, currently, uh, that was on appeal. And uh, any day now, I think you're going to get the result. But a number of different factors there, which was interesting, right? So you had that activist, you, know, you had the private placement, the share issuance, you had some litigation, and you have this uh, kind of special meeting coming up. So there's a number of different areas there where there might be a misunderstanding. Is it an uncertain situation? Yeah. And if you're able to have a view on that, you might have an advantage. And an activist investor is someone who actually goes in and um, uses the weight of their numbers in terms of voting intentions. Is that what, what's happening to be able to affect the management of the company? Exactly. So in this case, the activist uh, had asked for a special meeting in order to have a slate of directors elected. And so they had a number of, of directors that they wanted to run at that special meeting, and they probably would have won. And if they took over the board of the company, then that helps them choose the management and uh, potentially direct the direction of the company. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. So tell us about the bankrupt ice company that you invested in. That's really looking around for a special situation, I'm sure. <laughs> That's a special situation for sure. That was an interesting one a number of years ago, about a year or so after I started the fund in 2012. The ice company was in 2013. Uh, there's kind of an interesting situation where in North America, there were two primary ice companies, Arctic Glacier and Ready Ice. These two companies tried to merge in 2007 time period, and uh, the merger was rejected by the uh, FTC. So what happened then, unfortunately, you know, the crisis happened and uh, Arctic Glacier ended up going into bankruptcy. 
And in the bankruptcy, you could follow along. This was an advantage for kind of the smaller investors who could put things on its size. You could go through all the documents. You could see what the potential value of the assets were. And it turns out that the value of the assets were very highly likely to be more than the debt uh, because there were uh, several bidders for those assets. And one bidder that won, it was a private equity company. At some point in time, you could look in the documents and you knew who won and you knew what they bid. So there was value in the stock price and the equity above and beyond after paying the debt holders. So you could ballpark what that value was. And uh, it was all out there. And uh, it was basically a three or four bagger. It was a four bagger, if I remember correctly. And uh, there was about a one or two week time period where you had plenty of time to buy up as much of the stock as you wanted to and get that four bagger. Stock was still uh, trading while it was in a bankrupt situation. Stock was trading very low. Yeah. It got up to its true value within a couple months or so. Uh, so you had a three, four bagger in a couple months. And, you know, all the information is right there. It's just a matter of digging through it and knowing where to look. You're looking at what's usually known as net asset value. Yeah, in that case, uh, there was actually a bid. The assets were put out uh, to bid, and a number of different bidders, including several private equity firms, made offers, and you knew what those offers were. So, you know, the net asset value itself is a little bit on the edge of that. It would be a situation where, you know, if you were to liquidate the company, for example, uh, there might be one way to look at it. That would be the actual value after the liquidation in AV. In a couple other contexts, too, you could see it in closed-in fund or something like that, where it's kind of the current value of the, uh, of the entity. So I've got a quote here. I think I might have got it from your website, but um, I did the research a couple of weeks ago, is uh, significant volatility in a concentrated portfolio. Can you unpack that phrase and explain it for a stock market beginner? Yeah. So when you take a small number of positions, you know, concentrated positions, you're willing to own uh, relative to whatever your investable income is. And for a fund, you know, it's whatever the, the fund value is. What percentage of that are you willing to put into one company? And uh, so that's how concentrated it might be. When I buy into a stock, I like to do enough research, know it very, very well, where I'd like to buy at least 10% of an allocation. So at least 10% of the fund would be in one stock uh, as I buy into it. And sometimes I'll go even higher. But with that, with that, you'll get some volatility, which means a stock price could go up and down. As we know, it's not always connected to the value of the underlying business itself. And so if you have a small number of companies in your portfolio and there's a disconnect between the stock price and the underlying value, you could get some sharp changes there. And so for me, for my fund, I've been in existence since 2012. I've had a number of uh, very uh, high years. I had a number of, a couple down years, one down 30% year, but I had some up, you know, 80% years and things like that. So you get a real, real drastic changes and uh, it's not for everyone. You know, and uh, as an individual investor, too, you have to be able to withstand those ups and downs, not get overly excited, not get overly pessimistic if it's down. And uh, that's just kind of the nature of it. And if you have a small number of positions, you're, you're going to have that volatility like that. You're going to have those ups and downs, and you have to keep that into context. So is this how you refer to investing being a psychological exercise? Is holding your nerve part of that? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, not just with concentrated portfolios, but across the board, you really have to have more of a stable outlook. <laughs> you know, uh, it's nice when you're making money, but if you get too excited about it and if you treat it kind of as something a little bit more emotional, you're going to start to make bad decisions. And so ultimately, you know, it's a bit of a math problem. It's a bit of a, 
a story, you know, and you're kind of learning, there's some pattern recognition and things like that. And as part of your analysis, and uh, you don't want to kind of treat it as money itself, <laughs> because, uh, you know, you're going to start to uh, have a disconnect there between, you know, the stock price itself and the value of the company. You know, if, if you have a company that you think is worth, say, $10, the stock price trades at five, and then you have a lot of confidence in that, you're going to make that a decent sized position. If nothing changes in the operations and the stock price goes down to 250 who cares, <laughs> right? You want to buy more if you can. And if you can't, you write it out, right? Double check your analysis, but write it out. And if you get too emotional about it, then uh, you might say, well, I have a 50% drop. Oh no, <laughs> you know, I'm going to have to sell out or I'm afraid in some way. Or if, if it starts to affect you psychologically there, then maybe investing's not for you. You know, I mean, you want to, you want to be able to have those downs and, and the ups too. And, uh, you know, really tie it to your analysis of the value of the company itself and not kind of the stock price itself. That's not the driver. It's uh, your analysis should be the driver. It's interesting that you say that uh, not to think of it as money. That seems like a really key point to make about it. People are emotional with money. Everyone is, you know, even portfolio managers are professionals are because you think to yourself, okay, what's my performance fee going to be? How much I make less than or something like that. And you don't want to think about it like that. You want to think about it, you know, as, uh, okay, the stock is worth this. It trades at this. So this is when I think the time period might happen, you know, when you ballpark it, whatever the case may be, or you own a company and you think, I don't know what the price is or the target price is, but I know it's growing. It's doing well, great management, increasing margin. I think it has a long runway. And, uh, you know, that's the way you really want to look at it. If you start looking at it like, oh, hey, I made this much money, you know, on this trade or I made this much money last month. I'm great. I'm doing really well. <laughs> yeah, it's going to it's going to screw you up. You're going to start making bad decisions if you view it like that. So how concentrated is your portfolio? Uh, the top five companies make up about 75 percent of the portfolio. I'll generally own about 10, 12, 15 companies, uh, but I really do like those top five to be a big, big chunk of the, of the portfolio. Yeah. So these companies have really made it clear to you that you can have a, a belief in them in their management as well. Are you talking to managers and managers of the companies all the time? Yeah, generally for that uh, type of thing. Not in every case, you know, sometimes it's a decision not to, but uh, generally, especially with smaller companies, you want to make sure you get an understanding of, of their decision making. You want to look at documents uh, that are out there uh, through some of the filings. There's employment agreements. There's kind of things like the proxy statements. You want to look at those, not just the financials, not this, just the 10K and the 10Q. And you might find some nuggets in there that are helpful. But yeah, when you're when you have a concentrated portfolio like that, you really have to know the companies very, very well to have the confidence, not just to have the understanding of what the value might be, but also have the confidence to to own it. So what's an SEC filing and how can it help you find companies to invest in? Yeah, so you know, in the United States, uh the regulatory filings are required for all the publicly traded companies that are you know, required uh, SEC filing companies are called. And uh, you'll have the 10K, the annual report, you'll have the 10Q, the quarterly report, 8Ks will throw out uh, any kind of special uh, one-time news or other uh, disclosures that are required. But then there are a whole host of other things, you know, the proxy statements, which is the kind of annual meeting notice, which sometimes will have some interesting information in there. Again, you might have some employment agreements, you might have uh, something called an S1 or an S3, if there's a, some special situation thing going on, if they might be issuing shares or uh, registering shares or some case like that. There's a TO, which is a tender offer. There, you know, So there's a whole bunch of them on there. And uh, it's a good way to 
really learn about, discover new companies uh, and follow along in your current companies. And so I have various uh, alerts set up, you know, from these SEC filings and in order to uh, see what might catch my eye for a different idea generation. So part of your qualitative analysis is Twitter. (laughs) Tell us how you use Twitter for finding stock opportunities. Yeah, it's funny, you know, there's a lot of opportunity. There's a lot of smart people in Twitter and uh, people share their ideas very freely, uh, but, you know, get what you pay for. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, you know, you you can curate uh, your feed with a lot of uh, smart people and uh, people are able to have conversations, ask for feedback. You know, it's good for idea generation. It's good for kind of sometimes there's news flow. And you can look up a particular company just by putting in uh, the ticker symbol. You put a dollar sign in front of it and then put the ticker symbol and you'll see what everybody's saying about it. Uh, So it's a nice way to interact with other shareholders or people who are analyzing or looking at a company. Uh, It's a nice way to ask for feedback if you're looking at something. And it's a nice way to follow the news as well. I've got to say, uh, people always look at Twitter as being an incredibly toxic place. But uh, the financial side of Twitter, or FinTwit, is incredibly funny, good-natured, helpful. I mean, that's the impression I get. I'm I'm like you. I've curated my feed to have a lot of um, financial people talking. Is that the way you're finding it? Yeah, I I agree with you. And again, you get what you put into it, or you get what you... uh, who you decide to follow. And yeah, it can be toxic at times if you follow people who are toxic. You know, it's just like in real life, you surround yourself with people who are constantly getting into fights and picking fights and things like that. And, you know, do you want that in your life? But yeah, I generally find the finance community on Twitter to be productive, like you said, humorous, engaging, helpful, kind. So, you know, you're always going to have a bad apple here or there. But, you know, if that bad apple has a... (laughs) It's a good stock idea. Uh, <laughs> it'd be worth it, though. So anything to find a good idea. Just have you got any ideas that you've uh, picked up from Twitter that you can share with us? Yeah, well, you know, the Namtai Properties one was one on Twitter. There's uh, the Gedeker Warrants right now, G-O-E-D. Uh, they have some warrants and then the stock itself. That's been floating around a lot of conversations on Twitter there as well. And, you know, what I do actually is my current holdings and uh, my watch list, I'll just have a list of those tickers and uh, kind of check them once a day or so. You can put them in there, have a saved list, and uh, see what kind of news pops up there. So I would do that for your current portfolio, any stocks you're looking at. And who knows? Uh, sometimes you you find some interesting conversations there in places you wouldn't otherwise think to look. Yeah, but it's always good to have your ideas tested as well by um, other people with a great deal of expertise. Yeah. And some of those who have no expertise also, you know, and I, that's the thing with Twitter. But if you follow some smart people who have interesting backgrounds and who are kind of engaged, uh, if they happen to be interested in the company you're interested in as well, uh, so definitely some good conversations can be had. You've mentioned warrants a couple of times. I didn't think warrants were that well known in the US. I thought it was more of a European thing. Yeah, I think there's a lot right now because of these SPACs, um, you know, these special purpose acquisition vehicles where the warrants are attached to them. I was just reading a newsletter a couple of days ago and it linked to a website. The website lists all the publicly traded warrants in the US. I think there are 107 of them and most of them, 90 plus were SPAC warrants. But it's interesting to look through those, you know, because most of these warrants are timed and priced five years out. And so, 
they don't get picked up by kind of traditional options pricing. So sometimes there's some mispricing opportunities there if uh, you really can do the work. Yeah. Although this is uh, maybe above the heads of some new investors, but um, they're kind of in the, the option space, aren't they? Warrants are a little bit like options. If people want to find out more about warrants, who issues them in the U.S.? So the company itself will issue them. And, uh, you know, just to kind of give one example, this Gettaker company uh, that I, I referenced, GOED, just recently issued these or, or listed the warrants. And the reason they did that was because they did a capital raise. They raised money in order to make an acquisition. And they did that at a particular price. I think it was somewhere around $2.25. But then everyone who got shares, who bought shares at $2.25, also received a warrant. And uh, the warrants were freely tradable. So the stock trades and then the warrants start trading as well. And the warrants have a strike price of $2.25. So as the stock price has gone up, the warrant price has also gone up. And uh, those are now freely tradable. You know, there's a lot of them out there. Trades just like a stock. But instead of the stock itself and the stock price itself, it gives you this instrument that, you know, has a strike price of $2.25. So, you know, if it's going five years out and you have a view on the company itself, let's say it's growing say it might be worth $10, you know, in the next five years, stock might be at $4, warrant might be at $2. Yeah, a warrant allows you to buy full ownership of the stock, but not at the full price. So it's a form of leverage. It's a debt as well. Yeah, at a particular price. So in this case, it's $2.25. So, you know, if you think the stock price is worth 10 and it currently trades at four, great, you've got a great return from four to 10. But you could buy the warrants, right? And the warrants might trade at two and you're going to make uh, five times your money on that instead of uh, one and a half times. You know, but there's more risk too. We should warn listeners that there's a great deal more risk with this. And- you know, because the stock price might go down, right? If the stock price goes down to two, the warrants are worthless. <laughs> <Yes>. Okay. <laughs> uh, so you, you definitely have to have a view on the company itself, but you have a lot of time to make that view because in this case, the warrants are priced five years out. And so, you know, there's going to be some volatility along the way. There might be some kind of arbitrage opportunities and things like that. Uh, just a lot of ways to take advantage of mispricings during that time period in the warrants and the stock. Yeah. Do you believe that um, investors need to match their investing style to their personality? Yeah, 100%. 100%. And, you know, for me, that's why I do a concentrated portfolio because I like to dig deep into certain companies and uh, I get a little bit obsessive maybe about a company or two and I'll get into that. And not everyone's like that. You know, some people can own maybe 1% they might own 100 companies or 50 companies, and it might be more quantitative or whatever the case may be. You know, that's how Ben Graham used to do it and Walter Schloss and people like that. And then on the other end of the spectrum, Warren Buffett, when he ran his hedge fund, was very, very concentrated. And so was Charlie Munger. And so it's whatever works for you and whatever makes you comfortable and to sleep at night, essentially. So that's one thing of the personality fits into those allocations, that allocation size, percentages that you own. And the other part about it is, you know, what industries are you interested in? What companies are you interested in? Peter Lynch used to uh, invest in companies uh, he knew. Uh, this is, you know, very famous mutual fund manager in the 1980s and had a great track record uh, for a long, long time. And, uh, you know, he would invest in companies that he knew and he liked. And that's worked for a lot of people. You know, it's worked for people who like Tesla, for example, who people who like Apple. <laughs> It depends on uh, what you're interested in, what your personality is like. And, you know, some people, if you're a more agreeable person, for example, probably going to be hard to buy deep value stocks, <laughs> you know, because you're going against the grain. You're really a contrarian to buy really out of the favor stocks. And, uh, 
you know, that takes a, a certain bit of a personality that might make getting along in day-to-day life a little tougher, <laughs> but it might be profitable for you. Okay, Stephen. So tell us about Akitas Capital and if um, listeners are interested in getting in touch, um, how they can find you and your Twitter handle, obviously. And the Twitter handle. Yeah. So my Twitter handle is my name. It's uh, Stephen with a V uh, underscore Kiel, K-I-E-L. And the fund is Arquitos Capital. I launched it in 2012. Again, we take concentrated positions in uh, kind of unique companies. And uh, we have a number of kind of unique things to it. Uh, Arquitos Capital controls a small public company called Enterprise Diversified. And uh, Enterprise Diversified has an asset manager associated with it, too, that is kind of a platform for emerging managers that provides operational services to emerging managers. Uh, it's ticker SYTE. You know, so we'll, we'll take some concentrated positions in companies like that. But yeah, we've been around nine years or so. Uh, you know, done very well, uh, compounded my own money and some friends and family and other investors along the way and uh, really enjoyed doing it and uh, look forward to, you know, kind of having a, uh, another 30 years ahead of us or so. This is uh, something we want to kind of do for a lifetime. And, you know, for some of the individual investors out there, if you're talented and you have a kind of built up a track record and you're obsessed with it, so to speak, that's kind of what I was, was, uh, and I spun off from being a lawyer and launched the fund, you know, with my own money, with a small amount of uh, friends and family money as well. So it's definitely doable. Stephen Keel, thanks very much for joining me today. It's my pleasure, Phil. Thanks for having me. If you found this podcast helpful, please tell a friend, especially if it's someone who needs to start thinking about investing for their future. You'll be helping them and helping me to keep this show on the road. Shares for Beginners is for information and educational purposes only. It isn't financial advice and you shouldn't buy or sell any investments based on what you've heard here. Any opinion or commentary is the view of the speaker only, not Shares for Beginners. This podcast doesn't replace professional advice regarding your personal financial needs, circumstances or current situation. And thank you for listening to my podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.